For a limited time, until I kick off my deal hunting season next year, I want to get on a call with as many Simple Passive Cash Flow listeners who I have not connected with yet. I want to see if there's any way I can help or at least demystify this world of real estate investing to expedite you on the road to financial freedom. New friends, book a call at simplepassivecashflow.com slash talk. This is a story about a dude named Lane. He moved to the mainland and bought one place to stay. And then one day he went and tried to rent them out. And then he became one real investor man. Next is a pretty deep conversation that I had with Bill Exeter from Exeter 1031 about 1031 exchanges. Now, get one thing straight. I'm not a really big fan of these 1031s. I uh, did one way back when, 2014. Now that I'm going into syndications and private placements, I see 1031s exchanges are completely obsolete if you're using bonus depreciation found from doing a cost seg in your deal. That said, for the right person is the right tool for the job. Now, we did a webinar with this. If you want to check out the video version of this, go to our YouTube channel. Or you can find the video and the link to our YouTube channel at simplepassivecashflow.com slash 1031guide. And here's the show. Today we're doing a webinar on uh, 1031 exchanges where you can save some taxes. Start with the basics. And uh, we've got the right guy on the job here, Bill Exter from Exter 1031 Exchanges. Thanks for having me on. Today's agenda is we'll talk about IRAs a little bit and uh, why people are using you know, these IRAs and 401ks for real estate. You've got your uh, 1031 exchange company. And I think we worked with each other probably about, say, about three, four years ago now. When I did my 1031, I exchanged uh, two properties in Seattle for nine in the Midwest and the South. Mm -hmm. A little overview of your company and some of the services you guys provide here. Sure. Uh, so we're a qualified intermediary, or some people call us accommodator or, or even facilitator. Uh, we also serve as exchange accommodation title holders. So that means we hold title to real estate when it's a reverse or improvement exchange. And we've been doing it for a long time. We do all types of exchanges. We cover all 50 states. Uh, we're also one of the few uh, qualified intermediaries that will handle uh, 1031 exchanges of foreign property. And we cover uh, forward exchanges where you're selling first and then you're buying second, so that, which is probably about 97% of, of the activity out there. Uh, we do reverse exchanges where you buy first and then you sell your current property second, um, which works really well in today's market. We'll talk a little bit about that, but uh, a little more complicated, a little more uh, expensive. And then we do improvement exchanges also where you can sell your current property, you use some of the proceeds to buy replacement property, you have exchange funds left over, and you use those to make improvements or build out or retrofit the property you've acquired. Uh, and a lot of people don't talk about uh, zero equity 1031 exchanges, and you don't see them in markets like this very often, but you see them when there's recessions where the property drops significantly in value and it has no equity. It's, it's worth less than what you owe the bank. Uh, but you could still do a 1031 exchange if you have a taxable gain, which is actually common because people will refinance over and over. And we'll talk about those if we have time at the end of the program. Uh, we handle re uh, real property, which is most of them. Now, a lot of people have done exchanges on personal property, which means non-real estate. Uh, that was eliminated as of January 1st, 2018 with the new Tax Reform Act. So today, exchanges only apply to real property. It does not apply to non-real estate. Um, and then we do foreign property transactions, which we'll cover a little bit on that later on as well. So we kind of do it all, all 50 states, all types of exchanges. I also call you guys by another word, custodians, um, too. I don't know if that's mm -hmm. the right word or, or not. but Absolutely. Your... I mean, part of our job is to custody and safeguard the client's funds. A lot of people always ask, like, are you guys like a law firm? Are you guys lawyers? Are you guys, are you more like an escrow company in a way? Yeah, you could compare us to an escrow company. It's very similar in the process and the file and how it's administered. Um, you know, there's different types of qualified intermediaries out there. And, you know, a few of them are law firms, a few are CPA firms or tax advisors. Most of us are none of the above. We're folks that specialize and have done 1031 exchanges for a very long time. And all we do is 1031 exchanges. 
Right. Because a lot of tax forms, a lot of legal documents, I remember that we did. One of those things, I think, that even if you're a lawyer, you don't really know what you're looking at. So definitely need a specialist firm on this. That's true. And it's it's a transaction that, for our, obviously, from our perspective, is very common. But most attorneys and CPAs and other advisors, you know, don't see a whole lot of them. So um, they may know how to report them on the tax return or something like that. But if you don't do them every single day, you're not really familiar with the, the transactional structure and the day-to-day mechanics of that. So everybody kind of knows you build a team and every every little thing like 401k, a solo 401k, QRP, self-directed IRAs and 1031s. I, I got a guy. As we like to joke, you know, we made our mistakes decades ago. So we know how to do them and, and what works and what doesn't work. And a lot of uh, qualified intermediaries are, are more processors where they just kind of process the documentation. And we really want to work with the client, their advisors in more of a consultative and advisory capacity which kind of helps walk through the minefield, if you will, of all the mechanical steps that have to be uh, implemented as you go through the process. Right. So we've, we're always available to brainstorm. They can call us, ask questions, uh, bounce ideas off of us, uh, talk about various strategies and structures. And, uh, you know, with us and their advisors and the client, the whole idea is let's get together, let's talk about it, and let's poke holes in it. If there's a problem, let's find it now before it's too late. Yeah, I remember you guys were pretty helpful when I did mines because I mean, I was I was kind of going the opposite. I, most people pull properties to go into a bigger one, but I was doing the opposite. I was getting two properties to go into nine, and there was a few months of overlap between those two tender one exchanges. So it was kind of a nightmare, and it kind of got it's a little um, stressful too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I, and I don't know if you guys knew, but like some of those properties, the seller found out, so they kind of hosed me. They, you know when I was uh, trying to extend out the closings because they kind of knew I was in that distressed buyer mode. Yeah, that's a good point because when people are doing exchanges, when they're selling their relinquished property, there it's not really a huge issue if you disclose to the buyer. But when you're going out and buying your replacement property, what you just said is, a, is an excellent point that you have to be careful when you disclose it. Um, you know, some sellers don't care. They don't use it against you, but other sellers can, can use it against you. So it's all about kind of disclosing that at the appropriate time. And there's no right or wrong, wrong way to do it. It just kind of depends on each transaction. Kind of start at the beginning here because I realize some people don't know what the 1031 exchange is. So those who haven't heard of it before, it's named after the Internal Revenue Code. So it's Section 1031 of the Internal Revenue Code. Uh, so people just call them 1031 exchanges, tax deferred exchanges, delayed exchanges. They, they all kind of mean the same thing. And it allows you to sell your rental property, investment or business use property, and defer the payment of your taxes by reinvesting uh, in other like-kind property. And usually uh, investors either fall into a consolidation strategy, they sell multiple and buy one, or they go into a diversification strategy, just like you did, where they sell a couple and buy multiple properties. Um, And so it allows you to accomplish a lot of different things depending on what's right for you and what your goals and objectives are. And it allows you to do all of that without paying the taxes. So that's the benefit of it. And something I'd just like to reiterate there that I got to highlight in bold is like kind exchanges. So one of the bad things that I see is someone like myself who has a lot of this real property and now I'm transitioning to more syndications, which are held in LLCs, that would not be a like kind exchange. Good question. Yeah. In fact, uh, if you're doing a syndication, most people do it in a LLC structure where there's multiple investors. So it's really treated as a partnership for tax purposes. Uh, in which case, what the investors really buying is a partnership interest. They're not really buying a real estate interest. So it doesn't qualify for 1031 exchange treatment. So that's a good point to make. It uh, depends on what you're buying, but we have to look at that and make sure it qualifies as a direct purchase in real property. All right. So I'll ask the question, even though a lot of people probably heard the answer and they know which way this is going. Say I have a house that's appreciated $400,000. And I want to roll that into the next deal, which is a syndication with a few other people. Is that a no-go with 1031? <laughs> um, it's my favorite answer. It depends. Uh, my staff hates that, that answer. <laughs> In most cases, it's probably a no-go because you're structuring it as a partnership. But if you can do a syndication like a tenant in common investment strategy where each person is buying into a fractional undivided interest as a tenant in common, uh, that would work. 
if you're using a Delaware statutory trust structure, uh, that would work. A lot of people call it a DST investment property because each beneficial interest is considered a purchase of real estate for tax purposes. That would qualify. Um, it doesn't happen very often, but I've seen some people use a land trust and a beneficial interest in a land trust would qualify. But if they're structuring it as a, a an LLC and they're really buying membership interests, which is uh, essentially a partnership interest, that would not qualify. So there are ways to work around it to get it to work, uh, but in most cases it causes a lot of other um, complications. So. Most of the time, syndications are just put together as an LLC or partnership, and it just won't qualify. Right, and and people do do those tenant in commons, those ticks is what we call them. But um, you know, most times in 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 real life, the lead syndicators will kind of be like, "No, it's just not worth our time and effort to get that to work." And a lot of times, you'll be pulled in with you know the other pool of investors. And then it just makes things look a little funny too. And you've got this other entity out there that, you know, yeah, you try and explain that weeks that person's doing a 1031, they're doing a tick, but it just confuses everybody, in my opinion. Money is not that hard First, to find for these deals that even if you are bringing two, three, four hundred thousand dollars into a deal, it's really not that worth that much to uh, kind of rock the boat. That's true. That's absolutely, I think I would agree with that. And it just causes too many legal complications accounting and tax complications so most people are just going to go through it with a regular syndication and LLC and they just don't accept 1031 exchange funds at that point right right but you know it's your money you, you could potentially pay a hundred grand on or at more on four hundred thousand so maybe just chat I'll be honest some things I can't say to the general public because it's too personal and it's not to say bad things about others Unless you're in the mastermind. One rule we have is what happens in the mastermind stays in the mastermind. To get in, go to simplepassivecashflow.com backslash journey. Don't be left out and join the day. If you've been waiting on the sidelines, this is your moment and not to be taken by an institutionalized education program. So yeah, a lot of people aren't aware of uh, where the 1031s come from. In fact, it's funny. We still get people saying, well, is that legal? It's kind of funny when we get those comments because the 1031 exchanges have been in the tax code since 1921. So they go way back. Uh, for years, they were concurrent exchanges. And then the Starker family uh, actually did some in the early 60s. Uh, they were audited. They were disqualified. And they went to tax court. And it stretched all the way into uh, the late 70s when they, the cases were finally wrapped up. And so the Starker family, which took on the IRS through tax court, actually set the precedent for today's delayed exchange, where you can actually sell today, and then you have uh, so many days as we go forward to complete your 1031 exchange. And we'll talk about the, the deadlines later. So really, the Starker family set the precedent for that, and um, that's why we have today's delayed exchange transaction. Were they doing real estate, or was it like a partnership? or? Yeah, it was real estate, and they sold. Um, they were up in uh, Oregon and Washington. They sold some uh, timberland to Crown Zellerbach Corporation, and in return, they got a basically a five-year contractual agreement that said, "Look, uh, we're gonna, you know, the Starker family sold real estate, and Crown Zellerbach said uh, we'll buy it, and you tell us over the next five years what real estate you want, we will buy it and give it to you." So it was like a five-year delayed exchange. And they effectively took the position that it has to be concurrent, and that's what the IRS said, and Starker disagreed, said the code does not say it has to be concurrent. Um, the IRS disqualified the exchanges, and they fought the IRS, and won. The court agreed and said that the code does not say it has to be concurrent. And that's what kind of set the precedent for today. That also kind of created the, the backlash, if you will, from Congress, where they came out with the 45-day deadline and the 180-day exchange period. So some of the tax benefits here, um, obviously, you you delay your taxes. People are you know potentially in that 50, 40% tax bracket. So if you've got a, a taxable gain of $400,000 in that case, you could potentially be paying $100,000 to $200,000 of taxes right there. So it's a way of kicking the can down the, the road. Absolutely, yeah. And it really uh, you know, allows you to reposition your portfolio based on what your goals and objectives are without incurring any of the capital gain or depreciation recapture taxes. So you're absolutely right. It kicks the can down the road. 
uh, and it just allows you to keep deferring and deferring and deferring the taxes. I think traditionally people think that they're going to pay less taxes in the future because they'll be in retirement. They won't have the active income anymore. I think completely think the opposite. I want to have more income because of my investments in the future. So if that's the case, I would rather pay the taxes now, which you know, it, every situation is different, right? So kind of think for yourself mm-hmm. and do the math yourself. Yeah, it kind of depends. Uh, and if you compare, um, well, I guess the big benefit of deferring the taxes is that you have all your money in your pocket working for you. And so you can keep all the money invested and keep it growing and building wealth. And if you compare, you know, two families, one that sells and pays the taxes as they go along and one that uh, sells and does an exchange and defers the taxes all along, you know, after 30 or 40 years, the one that's been doing tax deferred exchanges throughout their lifetime will have a significantly larger uh, wealth and estate because they've had all their money continually rolling over and working and building for them. Uh, but if you do a if you do that well and you end up with a huge portfolio, you could be in a higher tax bracket once you retire. Uh, at that point, then it kind of gives you the option of, well, when do you want to recognize your taxes? Uh, we've had people who've come to us and said, look, I'm going to have a much higher tax bracket when I retire, when I start selling property. So one possibility is you do a partial exchange. Um, you could sell property today, maybe it's for a million dollars, and instead of reinvesting at one million and above, maybe you reinvest at 900000 trade down by 100000 and you recognize tax on just the 100000 So every time you exchange, you pull a little bit of money off the table. So like you said, it, it really depends on what's right for the investor, and there's lots of different ways to use the 1031 exchange depending on what their goals and objectives are. All right, and, and you brought up a great counterpoint to my counterpoint that I'll, I'll <laughs> highlight there. You know, um, it's all about kind of delaying that, that future gain in a way and, and using that or laying that taxes today so you can pay, so you don't have to pay taxes on it so you can invest it now. Kind of, um, you know, I talk a lot about that infinite banking concept. One of the reasons I, I don't like it, and although I do do this strategy and, uh, you know, we can, if you guys are interested in that, we can talk about that on a later date. But one of the bad things is, you know, like you put 50 grand into that life insurance, you lose $15,000 or so right off the bat, I mean, that could have bought you like half a turnkey rental. And none of the uh, calculations take that into account. So it's kind of the same thing here. You do that 1031 exchange, you get that, essentially that $15,000 back in a way. So you have access to that investing at. And and then I'll add another benefit here, and it's a little morbid. I had a call with a guy a few weeks ago, and you know, I was telling him, you know, my feelings on the 1031 exchange. There's some of the reasons why I wouldn't do one, but you know, for him, he was an older gentleman and he said, you know, man, I'm just going to, I'm probably going to die in the next five years. It's probably the last property I'll, I'll buy with this thing. And I just want to kick, hold, hold on to the can as long as possible and then pass it on to my heirs tax-free. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely true. And, and we have a morbid sense of humor too. We call it swap till you drop. <laughs> <laughs> So you just keep exchanging and exchanging throughout your lifetime. And then when you pass on, you leave the property to your heirs, whether kids, grandkids, or, or non-relatives. And uh, whoever inherits the property generally will get a full step up in cost basis, which means the capital gain goes away and the depreciation recapture goes away. Um, so they'll have absolutely no taxes to pay there. So it's, uh, it's really a great long-term wealth building tool. If you want to leave all the properties to heirs, they, they will inherit it. None of the capital gain, none of the depreciation recapture taxes will ever uh, be incurred. So that's one strategy. And then you get other people who call and say, well, I have no kids, or I am going to use up all of my wealth. I'm not going to leave it to my kids. Uh, there's, so there's different strategies there. So it just depends on what's right for the investor. Yeah, the journey I- swap to your drop is one of the big ones. And I think that's where you guys come in. I and mean, you guys do this all the time. So it's very, you know, it's like the podcast, right? Simple passive cash flow. Once you're in it in a while, you can kind of, it's very simple to you and you can very much advise on the, on the big picture. Absolutely. Yep. And again, you know, for investors, the important thing is to have all of your team together. So the investor, the realtor, the tax advisor, the legal advisor, us as the qualified intermediary, et cetera. And, everybody's got a little bit of that expertise and they kind of circle the wagons and, and hopefully get the right solution for the investor. Can I get into the nuts and bolts in here and how these things 
companies work. Okay. Well, one of the things we find is generally the 1031 exchange is right for the investor, but not always. So we wanted to quickly kind of cover other options that might be appropriate. So the 1031 exchange applies to properties that are held for rental, investment, or business use, and we'll cover more on that. Uh, the 1033 exchange comes into play when there's an involuntary conversion. Uh, so that could be something like a condemnation or what legally is technically correct as the eminent domain or a natural disaster. So the property is taken either by uh, act of God, as they say, the natural disaster, or by the government, which is your eminent domain. And that could be structured as a 1033 exchange. Now, the reason I like to bring that up is a lot of times investors are negotiating with a uh, an agency of either the the city, county, state, or federal government, and they don't even know they can do this. Uh, so they should ask the government to threaten them with the the involuntary conversion. And all they have to do is threaten them. And if they can show that they effectively said, look, we're going to buy your property. If you fail to sell, if you fail to close, we're going to take your property through eminent domain. And if they can prove that, then they they satisfy and qualify for the 1033 exchange treatment. And that'll buy them anywhere from two to five years to reinvest. So it's a much longer time frame to reinvest. They do not need anything like a qualified intermediary or third party to hold the funds. So there's a lot of neat planning opportunities with the 1033 exchange. Uh, and you can actually pull cash out of the deal and not incur tax consequences. All you have to do is really reinvest at equal or greater value, and it doesn't matter how you pay for it. So a lot of neat stuff there. Yeah, and you know, I used to be a city engineer for a couple of years, and I worked for a big company where we, we would be able to do condemnation um, because uh, it's a very powerful company. But the way it works there is it from the – the government agency side is it just takes a long time. And just in case you guys are wondering, you're not going to get paid like two X the value of the property. It's going to be a That's true. Right. <laughs> Maybe like one, 110%, 150%, something like that within reason. Right. Because you know, these guys say they like their government jobs and they don't want to get fired. So they're not going to put their butt on the line. <laughs> they don't care. They can that's, wait that's you very out. True. But you know, you can always, you know, if, if this is a situation for you, talk to Bill and then maybe he can like, there's a formula that he has and share it with your, uh, your city engineer or whoever you're working with. And I'm sure they'd be okay with putting something on letterhead that very kosher for you to qualify for that 1033 exchange. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The 1034 exchange was something a lot of people did, but they didn't necessarily realize it. And that was kind of a rollover provision so if they would sell their home that they live in, their primary residence, and then reinvest it in another primary residence of equal or greater value, they could roll over their capital gain into the new property and not pay taxes. And that was taken away in 1996. And then in 1997, they came out with the 121 exclusion, which for most people is actually a much better mousetrap per se. Uh, the 121 exclusion says if you've lived in your property and owned the property as your primary residence for at least two out of the last five years, and it doesn't have to be consecutive, as long as it's a total of 24 months during the last uh, 60 months, then you qualify for a tax-free exclusion up to $250,000 in taxable gain if you're single, $500,000 if you're married. So tax-free is always better than tax-deferred. Um, it gets challenging when the gain is more than 500000 so there's ways to kind of integrate that with a 1031 exchange. We'll talk about that later. So I don't, I don't know if you remember this. You probably don't remember this. And I, don't, I don't think I was doing a very good job of communicating when I did my first 1031 exchange. But I, that property I exchanged was my primary residence initially. So year, year 2009, 2010, I lived there. So about a year, year and a half. And then I rented it out for the next few years. So you're saying if I would have lived back in there like another year to get that, get above that two out of five year threshold, that would have qualified for the 121 exclusion. Exactly. And the way to look at it is when you sell the property, the date you close on it, you're going to look back five, five years or uh, 60 months. And as long as you can say you've lived in it for 24 months total out of that 60 month period, then you would qualify. So you'd have to look at that and say, okay, if I move back in and live there for a year, would I have a total of 24 months during the last 60 months? And it just depends on how it works out. Sometimes it, you move back into it, but some of the time that you lived in, it starts dropping off after the five-year window. 
So, so what's it kind of the depends on how the numbers work out? What's the paperwork that you need to? Um, what's the paper trail you need to show for this? Because I know, I know a lot of guys they they have property and they've been you know they've had it for a while and they're thinking about maybe moving back in or you know just you know for tax people do crazy things to save taxes right they'll, they'll move back in um, have another primary residence or side residence or call it a vacation home what do they need to show? to get that two years? Good question. I mean, it, it only applies if you get audited. And once you're audited, you're going to have to demonstrate that you did live there for the 24-month period. So, the, you know, the IRS could look at all sorts of things in terms of where was your mailing address, where did your utility bills go. Um, I've actually seen and heard of them uh, asking the neighbors who have lived there, you know, who lived next door to you for a period of time. Um, they'll check all sorts of things to see, you know, who lived there or who didn't live there. So as long as you can show that you lived there for at least two out of the five years, you'll qualify. But it, but it does have to be your primary residence. You do have to live there for two out of five years. Right. Some, some things that come to mind that definitely you should take care of is definitely shouldn't be taking rental income from that, that place. If you do take rental That's income true, yep. from the end of the table, <laughs> you definitely should not be taking depreciation on the home because it's not a rental property. Yeah, utility bills comes to mind. Good idea there. And uh, just don't be a bonehead about it, I think. <laughs> yeah, as long as you're above board, you're in good shape. If you're pushing the envelope and bending the rules a little bit, that's where you get into trouble. So it's primary residence, not vacation home. You can't call it a vacation home. That's right. Yeah, it has to be your primary residence. Vacation homes and second homes kind of fall into the middle. They're not a primary residence, so they don't qualify for the 121 exclusion. Uh, they're not rental property or investment property. I mean, most of us buy that for investment anyways, but it's not technically investment property. So it doesn't qualify for the 1031 exchange. So there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of planning opportunities there where you can convert it to a primary residence or you can convert it to rental property. Yeah, maybe you can say like you and your wife were fighting for two years and then she kicked you out and then you live there. <laughs> Just joking. <laughs> Like I said before, it's it's really critical to have your team together because everybody has a little piece of information that's always good to wrap together and, and give, it, give everybody a chance to poke holes in your strategy to make sure what you're doing is the right strategy for you. Um, structures, uh, there's really three primary structures. There's forward 1031 exchanges. That's where you're selling first, buying second. Uh, that's, again, what I said before is that's 97% approximately of the transaction volume out there. Uh, there's reverse 1031 exchanges where you are going to buy your replacement property first and then you sell your relinquished property later. So it's it's the exact opposite. In today's market, that actually makes a lot of sense because you're buying first. You can take all the time you want to go out and find the right property, uh, buy it, close on it. They're more complicated because we have to take title to the property. Uh, we as the qualified intermediary. Um, so it gets a little complicated there. Then there's improvement exchanges, which we kind of mentioned. So going back to the forward exchanges, that's, again, 97% of the, of the transaction volume out there. And there's a number of ways of doing that. You know, before the Starker case, all of the 1031 exchanges were concurrent, which means the sales and the purchases all closed simultaneously or concurrently on the same day. And that's kind of like herding cats, trying to get everybody to move together and everybody get their their ducks lined up in a row, and, and then closing concurrently can be challenging. So today, most of them, because of the Starker case, are now considered delayed exchanges, where you sell your relinquished property first, and then you have 180 days to close on the purchase of your replacement properties. In today's market, though, it gets a lot more complicated. You, know, you sell first, you trigger your gain, and then what if you can't find replacement properties that make sense? It's a hot market. You're getting multiple offers, bidding wars, et cetera. Um, if, you, if you sell first, you're in your 45 days, you're trying to find property and you make offers and you, know, you don't win the bid, um, you may end up with a failed exchange. It becomes taxable. Let's but pause there because we're talking about the 45-day rule. You sell the first property and then you have 45 days after the, the date of the sale to identify some um, other replacement properties. And you just can't identify every single property under the sky. There's a limit. <laughs> That's right. In fact, when I got in the business in the early 80s, we'd have clients who'd call up, and this is before the regulations came out, so we weren't sure what the answer would be from the IRS. And they would ask, can I identify the, you know, like the Los Angeles County Multiple Listing Service? And it's like, <laughs> no, that's probably a little too broad. 
So that's right. That's you have 45 calendar days to identify, and most people use the three property rule, so you can identify up to three properties with probably with the intent to buy one, but you could certainly buy all three if you wanted to. I think I did like the 200 percent rule because my mm-hmm. on my exchange I had like a I think it sold for 450, so I walked away with. 150,000 or 200,000 of profit. I think I identified 10 or 12 properties or something. How did we get to that number? Yeah, good question. So with the, you know, usually um, if clients are uh, really trying to trade up in value by buying one property, they'll use the three property rule. When they're trying to diversify like you did, then you're going to sell one or two probably and buy multiple the three property rule is not going to work because you're going to want to identify more than three like you did. So then we use the 200% and that's 200% of your sale price. So in your case, if you sold for 450, 200% would be 900,000. You could identify as many properties as you want, as long as the total value identified is not more than 900,000. So you just double the sale price of your relinquished property. So even if you're, you're the amount that you profit, like for me, it wasn't very much of the 450 because I still had a lot of uh, loan left over. But even if you have a lot of uh, if you 100% cash, 80% cash in the deal, you're still up, only allowed to go up to that 200%, which I think is a little. That's bit. right. Yeah. Yep, that's exactly right. That's right. And, and that's why it's, in some cases, people are going to buy one property of, of greater value. So they'll use the three property rule because the, the three property rule has no limit on the number of value. So even if you sell for 450, you could buy or identify three properties and each one could be, you know, a $10 million value and it would still be okay. Under the 200% rule, there's no limit on the number of properties, but the limit is on the value. So it's either or, whichever works better for the investor. Okay. So there's just two, two kinds of rules to follow there and then. Yeah, there's two rules and there's one exception. And that is if you identify more than three properties and you identify more than 200% of the value, technically your identification wouldn't qualify the exception is if you actually go out and acquire and close on at least 95% of the value identified, it'll be a, the exception will apply and it'll qualify for tax deferred exchange treatment. So if you identify $10 million in assets, you're going to have to buy and close on $9.5 million to satisfy the 95% uh, exception rule. So it's, you have to be careful. If you close on less than 95%, that won't apply and your whole exchange will be disqualified. So that's probably designed more for people who are doing a portfolio acquisition. You've got the 45 days to identify those, those replacement properties. And then you've got um, the 45 day rule. In my opinion, that's the hardest, by far the hardest constraint you have to fall in here. And um, you don't have to comment here, Bill, but I, um, I've heard of some, some CPAs or other guys doing this is that they'll backdate the 45 day rule. But uh, you don't have to comment on that, Bill. <laughs> oh, I'd ha- be happy to jump in. Uh, we call those accommodating accommodators. And uh, for, for the investors who are listening, that's also tax fraud. So I would steer clear of that. Um, but, but you're right. There are a few out there who will do that and they'll violate the tax code. Yeah, they're usually found in like strip malls and like uh, they work from home. <laughs> yeah, be very careful. I would just steer clear of those. It makes you wonder if they're willing to do that. What else are they willing to do? Right. Or if they're even filling out the right paperwork too. Uh, exactly right. Yep. So after that, that 45 days, you've identified all your properties. You have 180 days to close on all said properties. Right. Exactly right. And all you have to do is close on them. So that would qualify then and you're in good shape. As an investor, you just got to be careful. Like we said, during that 180 days, you know, it's something that you don't really want to tip off to the seller party. I wouldn't even really want to tell the broker involved too. That's, you know, brokers, I don't think brokers are your friend, even your own buyer broker. You know, in that 180 days, if something slips, now they know that you're a, a distressed buyer, like we said. That's absolutely right. If you're past the 45 days and they know you've identified their property, they know that you've got to buy theirs or one of the other three that you've identified. So it, it limits your negotiating ability there and you could be, it could be used against you. Right. And I'll, I'll just tell what happened with mine. So my closing just slipped a little bit because the, the lender wasn't able to, um, you know, it happens, right? The seller was like, no, I don't want to close. It. I don't want to sell this to you anymore because they kind of knew what was going to happen. I think they were just trying to call my bluff. And, um, you know, then I start to think like, okay, well, if I don't do the 1031 exchange, 
it's not the end of the world, right? Like I can still just pay taxes on that little portion of that unused fund. So I think it was like $30,000 down payment that I was using from of these funds. So if I don't use that, then I pay taxes on almost a third of that. So I would have paid $10,000 of taxes there. Or I, what I ended up doing is just like, come on, man, just like increase the price by a few grand. And it was sort of like extortion in my opinion, which I wasn't really happy about. But anyway, it's all over now. Yep, it can happen. So reverse exchanges. So reverse kind of, especially in today's market, allows you to go out and you know take all the time you want, find the right property that makes sense, and then buy first. And then you've got the property, you've closed on it. Uh, all you have to do is worry about selling your existing property within the next 180 days. And in today's market, that's relatively easy unless it's a, a unique property with special considerations. So uh, the reverse makes a lot more sense. The challenge is that we have to hold title to the property. And so it's what they call the exchange accommodation title holder. And the IRS has authorized this parking arrangement where you can close on the acquisition first but we have to hold title as the uh, exchange accommodation title holder. So it can complicate the 1031 exchange. If there's a lender involved, they're not terribly excited about us holding title since you're the borrower. So there's, there's a lot of issues we have to kind of go through to see if it would work. And that's why it's only about 3% of the transaction volume out there. I mean, in theory, I mean, it sounds great, but what are the costs again for the delayed 1031 and reverse 1031? Good question. The delayed exchanges, um, it's a pretty tight range of fees. Most of the fees are somewhere in the, say, $750 to $1,200 uh, range for a regular 1031 exchange. Uh, we're $899 uh, for one sale, one purchase. Reverses are going to be all over the place, depending on who you talk to. But most of the exchange companies who really know what they're doing, they're going to be priced somewhere between six dollars and $9,000. Uh, they're going to set up an LLC just for the taxpayer's transaction. At least they should. You shouldn't be reusing the same entity over and over and over again. Um, so all of that cost should be included. Uh, we're about sixty-eight fifty if it's one sale, one purchase. Uh, that includes everything, all the exchange documents, all the parking arrangement documentation, the cost to set up and maintain an LLC just for that transaction. Um, and it, all the consulting that's related to that as well. Yeah. Uh, so it does get more costly and it's more complicated, especially if there's a lender involved. Right. So if you're doing like, uh, you know, trying to shelter a gain of more, less than a hundred grand, it's just probably not even worth it. Yeah. You just have to look at the threshold there and see what the client, what makes sense for the client. If it's a, you know, a small gain, it's not worth the hassle. It's probably better just to pay the tax and then you can reinvest on your terms, your timeline. And then the improvement 1031 exchange, uh, we kind of mentioned before, you, you sell a current asset and you use, use the funds to both buy property and then make improvements on it. It's more complicated also, just like the reverse exchange. Uh, we have to hold title to the property you acquire. And if there's a lender involved, they may not permit that. So we have to kind of go through the process to see if the, everything will work out well and it'll, it'll work okay. Um, so you don't see a whole lot of improvement exchanges out there because you've got that risk issue and there's usually some type of lender or construction lender involved. And you also have the 180 day constraint. So if you can't, whatever you can't build within the 180 day period won't qualify as part of your exchange. So it really depends on, on what the, what you're looking at doing in the transaction. Uh, then our role is really the qualified intermediary, and I can go through some of these pretty quickly. Is you know we draft the legal documents, we hold the funds during the process, or we hold title to real estate as we go through all of that. Uh, it's important to get everybody involved right off the bat. Um, you know, have your legal and tax advisors take a look at everything, make sure it's all going to qualify, and we'll serve in a, a kind of an advisory consultative role, almost like a quarterback, where we're making sure all the pieces are kind of fitting in together and and working together so the 1031 exchange will be successful. Right. And you guys need to get the qualified intermediary on board before your subject property sells first. Once you sell right. it, yep. it's too late. Sorry, guys. Exactly. Once the sale closes, they have the right to the funds, and that's what triggers the tax consequence. So getting started is easy. Just to notify all the parties that you're doing a 1031 exchange, have your advisors review everything, uh, retain Exeter 1031 exchange to get your exchange set up. Uh, and then from there, we'll take the ball and run with it. We'll talk to your closing agent, your escrow officer, et cetera, 
get copies of all the documents, draft the exchange documentation, and uh, email it to you and your advisors for review and signature. And then the exchange is set up and you're ready to go. Um, and then at that point, you can close whenever you're ready. So you do need to tell your broker then and then your lending officers. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's uh, on the sales side, you want to tell your broker and closing agents probably right off the bat. So that way they, they know what to do, because there are some documents that get structured a little differently. Uh, and certain jurisdictions like California, um, a couple other states have withholding requirements. So you want to get the proper documentation to avoid the withholding since you're doing a 1031 exchange transaction. Um, on the buy side, you know, you don't have to tell anybody right off the bat, but the documents will be a little bit different. So you kind of wait toward the end so that you don't have to go through what you did where they use it against you. And then the, the qualifying use issue, this is one of the most important parts of the 1031 exchange. Lots of misinformation out there, but it's important that the property you're selling and the property you're buying are held for rental, investment, or business use. Uh, any of those three would qualify. Uh, that's critical. If you're in the business of you know, buying property and rehabbing it, uh, fixing it up, and then selling it, or what we call flipping or rehabbers, uh, you're not really holding for investment. You're holding for sales. So that's not going to qualify for exchange treatment. If you're in the business of developing or contracting, et cetera, and you really buy, build, and sell, then again, you're holding for sale. It doesn't qualify. Now, if you do any of those activities, you buy, you rehab, you fix up, you you build and develop or what have you, and then you hold as rental property, then it would qualify. So it all boils down to what is your intent? And a lot of people get hung up on how long did you hold title to the property? Uh, did you hold title for a year, two years? You know, there is no holding period requirement in the code or the regs. What it says is you have to have the intent to hold for rental investment or business use, and that's what it's all about. Obviously, the longer you hold it as rental property, the easier it is to prove intent. So that's why you get people recommending one year, two years, what have you. But it's all about proving intent that you had the intent to hold for rental investment or business use. Right. So a good example would be um, if you do a property, you fix it up and you're going to your intent to hold it. But something happens where you move across country or you get military orders and you can prove that you can prove the paper trail. You got emails. I mean, it all comes down to an audit, right? Like, how can you how can you substantiate your claim? And that's I know exactly right. Guys, Your example is perfect. A lot of guys, these you know, these flipper guys, they always they're they're the worst. Like, they're like, well, I'm gonna try and make these emails and like, hey man, I'm gonna hold this forever. <laughs> no, that's not gonna work. <laughs> that's right. Yep, it all boils down to your ability to prove intent. So. The rehabbing, the flipping, the wholesaling and whatnot just won't qualify unless you can prove you had the intent to hold. So same with condo conversions and all of that. Uh, and the holding period, we kind of already talked about that. So just it all boils down to what can you prove uh, if you get audited. Uh, Like-kind property has lots of misinformation out there. This literally means all you have to do is sell real estate and buy real estate. And as long as you're selling real estate and buying real estate, it qualifies as like-kind. If you're doing foreign property, it has to be foreign property for other foreign property. If you're doing U.S. property, it has to be U.S. for U.S. property. But as long as it's real estate for real estate, it'll satisfy the like-kind requirement. So that's really an easy thing to satisfy. So last year, a lot of my guys bought coffee parcels. So you guys can check that. It's about passive cash flow backstop coffee. And that's in Panama. Would that qualify for a like-kind exchange? They well, it would if, if they're if they're buying parcels down there, but it would have to be they would have to sell foreign property to buy that to qualify. If they're selling U.S. property and then buying down there, that would be that would not qualify because they're selling U.S. property. They're not buying U.S. property. This is just a quick list of like kind property so they can see what would qualify. And all of these are considered like kind to each other. So there's still a lot of curriculum out there that says if you sell a condo, you have to buy a condo. If you sell an apartment, you have to buy apartments. And that's not true. Uh, again, as long as it's real estate for real estate, it qualifies. So all of these are considered like kind to each other. You can exchange between all of these asset classes, including uh, things like oil and mineral or oil and gas rights, mineral rights, water rights, air rights, et cetera. All of those qualify as real estate in most states. So that would all be part of a 1031 exchange. This is a kind of a nuance, like in certain areas like Texas, you can buy just the mineral rights or the, you know, the oil rights there. Absolutely. Can you also strip off the rights and sell it? 
You could strip off the rights and sell it. Uh, it might be an, uh, an easement in perpetuity. It might be a leasehold interest. Uh, so there's a lot of different ways that it might qualify. Uh, so it can get pretty creative. And of course, fractional ownership would work, whether it's a tenant in common investment property or a Delaware statutory trust uh, would qualify. And then non-like kind property, just want to kind of throw this out there. This gets really complicated. We could talk about it for a long time. Uh, second homes, primary residences, vacation homes, anything that's really held and used personally obviously won't qualify. Uh, it has to be held for rental investment or business use. Yeah, you and should the be next getting slide, that, that 121 oh, in anyway. Exactly. Absolutely. Um, and there's ways to convert that, so we can certainly change what the the intent is. You can convert it to rental property and rent it long enough, et cetera. If you hold title to your property in some type of an entity, a partnership, a multiple member LLC, a corporation, things like that, keep in mind that you don't own real estate. The entity actually owns the real estate. You just own a partnership interest or a membership interest or shares of stock, and that does not qualify for 1031 exchange treatment. There are lots of potential ways to restructure this so that it would qualify, but it really takes all the advisors to kind of get together and figure out what can be done. The exception to that is anything that is a disregarded entity. So single member LLCs, uh, living trusts, Delaware statutory trusts, land trusts uh, are usually exclusions to that rule. But just make sure you have your advisors take a look at all that. Um, Vacation properties, uh, this is all about if you have a vacation property, it would still qualify for 1031 exchange treatment if you follow this guideline, which is rent it for at least uh, two weeks, 14 days per year, limit your personal use to not more than 14 days per year or 10% of the number of days you rent it out uh, each year. And, and this isn't really a safe harbor. This is if you follow this guideline, you can do a 1031 exchange on vacation properties. It would also apply to second homes. So that's really a great ruling there. We, in the past, we didn't know before 2008 whether these would qualify. And the deadlines we kind of discussed before. So you've got the 45 calendar days to identify. It's exactly 45 calendar days. Starts running with the close of your first transaction. Um, you know, go through the process, see if you can delay the closing to buy yourself some more time there and start looking for replacement property as soon as possible. Yeah. And, and a lot of these things I covered in a previous podcast, I'll, I'll attach them in the, uh, I'll probably put this in simple passive cash flow backslash 1031, but you know, delaying the closing dates, uh, looking for property early, talking to your providers for additional properties in the pipeline. Um, and then consider using a tick or DST properties, just talking with your custodian for the, the big picture. Absolutely. Yep. Then you've got a total of 180 days, which we mentioned before, to actually go through and complete your entire exchange process. So that's the critical part. The 35 days, uh, sorry, the 45 days and the 180 days uh, are actually part of the tax code. So the IRS doesn't even have authority to extend these deadlines. So they can't be extended for any reason. Uh, the identification requirements um, identify to the qualified intermediary. I know there's some uh, some people out there will say, well, you can identify to your broker, your tax advisor, or whomever. Uh, you can identify to somebody involved in the transaction. From my perspective, the only parties involved in the transaction are parties to the exchange agreement, and that's the investor or exchange or and the qualified intermediary. So I would identify to the qualified intermediary to be safe, and then these are the rules we talked about before. So as long as you satisfy one of those rules, you'll qualify under those under the identification rules. Uh, reinvestment requirement, we get a lot of misinformation here too. Uh, keep in mind the whole idea is you own an asset and as long as you remain fully invested, the IRS will allow you to defer the taxes. So you want to make sure you're trading equal or up in value based on the net sale price. If you sell property for a million dollars, your net sale price after closing costs is probably about 950, 960, something like that. So you're not reinvesting your capital gain or your profit. You're not reinvesting your equity. You're reinvesting the entire value, the net sale price of the entire property. And then you want to reinvest all of your equities. The cash that comes out of your sale has to be reinvested. Uh, you can always pull cash out, but it will be taxable. There's no way to pull cash out and not pay taxes. All right. And that's uh, called the boot. Like if you just have like five grand or 50 grand left over, you got to pay taxes on that. But at least you got the lion's share out of there. 
Exactly. And, and you know, partial exchanges where you pull a little bit of cash out and pay tax are perfectly okay. It doesn't hurt the exchange, just means you're going to pay some taxes. And there's unfortunately articles out there that say you have to reinvest equal or up in value. Well, that's only if you want to defer all your taxes. Um, if you want to pay some, it's okay. You just trade down a little bit. Yeah. And maybe you're just trying to sharpshoot to get out of that 50% tax bracket. You just want to get into the next one. You know, this is- Absolutely. Yep, that's a good point. Your example is a perfect example. Some people will use the exchange specifically to get out of the, the higher tax bracket. So you can just kind of control how much you recognize each year and pay the taxes on. Uh, so partial exchanges are absolutely okay. Permissible expenses, this just gives you a quick idea. What I would do is just before closing, a couple of days before closing, get a copy of your estimated settlement or closing statement and meet with your CPA. Uh, you can also ask us as well, and we'll go line item by line item, and we wanna allocate those that are permissible expenses. Anything that is a selling expense, your broker's commission, title, escrow, et cetera, would qualify, recording fees, uh, documentary transfer taxes, all qualify. Operating expenses like prorated rents, uh, prorated property taxes, HOA expenses, Things like that are not permissible. Lender-related items, loan payoff costs, charges, fees, et cetera, loan origination costs and fees are not permissible. Um, So we can actually narrow down to what are permissible and what are not permissible. And those that are not permissible, you can put out-of-pocket funds into closing to cover those, and then you won't incur any taxes. So that's critical if you want to avoid paying any tax. If, you know, a lot of clients don't care, they just let it go through and they pay a little bit of tax on those non-permissible items. A lot of rules there, but I would just rely on what are the experts on that, that kind of stuff. Yeah, this slide just kind of gives you a quick outline of all the permissible expenses. So it'll go through that list. And I think the next slide goes through all the non-permissibles as we get through that. Um, this, so, is all, you know, this is all the small potatoes in terms of the big picture, but just in case you guys exactly. want to review this later. But I, I just just rely on your custodian for this stuff. And you can certainly exchange multiple properties, which is exactly what you did. You sold two and bought, I think you said nine. Uh, So you can go either direction. You can sell multiple, buy multiple, or any combination thereof. Just the more properties involved, the more complicated it gets. Uh, There are ways to combine a forward 1031 exchange with a reverse exchange or vice versa. So if you have a lot of moving parts, we can actually combine two exchange strategies to help accomplish things. You may sell a couple properties, buy a property in the middle, and then sell a couple more properties and combine them all through that. If it's a seller carryback involved, that's where it gets complicated. So if you're selling property and you do a seller carryback note, keep in mind that you're selling real estate, you're getting some cash, but you're also getting a note. And the question is, how do you go buy replacement property when there's a seller carryback note involved? It's possible. It gets a little more complicated. So we really have to look at the situation, walk you through the complexities involved and decide if it makes sense for you. But uh, with a 1031 exchange, I always recommend try not to do a seller carryback note unless you absolutely have to, because somehow you have to convert it to cash so you can go buy your replacement property. Uh, Taxpaying entity, we have to make sure the same taxpayer is selling versus buying throughout the entire 1031 exchange. So this goes back to those entities I talked about before. If you're selling as a multiple member LLC, which is a partnership, and you do a 1031 exchange and then you go buy as an individual, that's a completely different taxpayer that's not going to qualify. So we have to make sure that the taxpayer that's selling is also the taxpayer that buys. So we have to go through all of those and see who is the real taxpayer. These are the exceptions because they're disregarded entities. So the single member LLCs, the Delaware Statutory Trust, Land Trust, and and whatnot. Entities often want to break up. So partnerships, especially, you know, formal partnerships, multiple member LLCs, if they want to go different directions, there's lots of potential solutions. That's where we need to get the legal tax and financial advisors involved. Uh, We'll kind of be the quarterback, we'll bring up the issues and then let the legal and the tax guys kind of take it from there uh, and solve it. So if you if you hold title in real estate to a uh, in in some type of a multiple member LLC or partnership or corporation, now is the time to talk to your advisors to find out what your exit strategy might be. So you can change everything today in preparation for a future 1031 exchange. 
Uh, related party issues, this gets really complicated. Just let's suffice it to say that if you're selling to a related party, it will qualify. You just have a two-year holding requirement. If you're buying from a related party, in most cases, it's probably not going to work. Uh, there are some exceptions. We'll have to kind of go through the process and see if any of the exceptions might apply. But just remember, if you're selling, it'll work to your holding period. If you're buying from a related party, probably isn't going to work. Uh, we can walk through it to see if anything might work for you, but it probably won't work. And final slide is kind of combining special planning. So I'm going to use as an example. We had a client a number of years ago that uh, our husband and wife bought property in La Jolla, California, um, probably 40, 45 years ago, lived in there that entire time as their primary residence. They were having health problems. They wanted to sell and move to the East Coast where their kids and grandkids were located, but their capital gain was $8 million. So if they were to sell that, they'd get 500,000 tax free. They'd pay tax on seven and a half million, which would kill them. So they couldn't sell. Uh, the IRS actually came out with a ruling that allows them to move out of the house, convert it to investment property, rent it for a sufficient period of time to prove that was their intent. So we had them rent it for 24 months. That straddles three tax returns. And then at that point, they sold it and they still qualified for living two out of the five years they got the $500,000 tax-free exclusion, and because they've held it as investment property, they qualified for the 1031 exchange. They deferred the other $7.5 million in a multiple or multifamily on the East Coast where they were able to move back with their family. So a lot of ways to kind of combine all of this to satisfy all sorts of potential problems with uh, property ownership. So anytime you have the more complicated issues, we can always sit down and kind of walk through your issues and see if there's something that might work out by combining stuff. That was a special Stuff's a new thing. professional term, by the way. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, while we're on that special tax planning, let's talk about these DSTs. I'm not a fan of it. I think of it as kind of tax evasion. You hear about it a lot. I just kind of wanted to hear it from what your opinion on these things. And what, what are they, I guess, first? Sure. And, and I think we need to dif differentiate between the, the two different DSTs. One is a Delaware statutory trust, which is replacement property, uh, and that does qualify. There's a specific revenue ruling from the IRS that covers that. The other DST is a deferred sales trust, and there's a number of other companies that have similar strategies under different names. And it's important to note that the IRS has not ruled anything on them at this point in time. So you, it's very important to sit down with your tax advisors, have them look at it, uh, review the documentation to make sure you want to proceed with that. Uh, I would agree. I'd, I'd be very careful with those strategies. Uh, make sure you don't proceed without tax advisor assistance. Yeah, you know, probably the same guy doing that is in the strip mall or working from home, backdating people's 45-day clocks and... Uh, saying, hey, man, I can give you this, uh, this statutory trust for you and you can not pay taxes. So it's, it's kind of shady. I think it's at the end of the day when the IRS comes knocking, a lot of these guys just aren't going to be able to back you up and you're on your own. And personally, I don't like to go forward with any transaction until there's IRS guidance in court cases that are pretty solid. So I know I don't have to worry about it and I can sleep at night. Right. And I think it's kind of tax evasion because, I mean, the 1031s, they make sense, right? The intent was that you you have a business and the government wants to stimulate the economy and wants to incentivize people from, you know, growing their business and getting a bigger property. But that thing just seems a little bit unfair to me. It just crosses that line, but. That's, that's why it's important always to have the legal and tax advisors take a look at it just to make sure they're safe. Yeah. So, you know, other closing comments, you know, in 2015, 16, I traded two Seattle properties for nine drinking rentals that we're, we're kind of talking throughout. Today, I today I'm selling all those properties, Bill. In case you haven't, I'm unraveling all the hard work you guys did. <laughs> I'm, I'm selling them, <laughs> all the taxes on them, which is going to be a huge tax bill. But for me personally, I'm going into syndications and private placements. So this 1031 exchange, it's a tool. It's a very good tool for the right people. You got to consider your end game strategy. And and for me, it was it, I kind of regretted, but you know, you you always learn. Right. It's always a, a stepping stone. I think. Absolutely. It has to be right for you. And, and I'm always a fan of saying it has to put you in a better position and you have to define what that better position means. And if it's not the right thing for you or it doesn't put you in a better position, then you shouldn't be doing it. Uh, so it's not for everybody. Absolutely true.
You want to get a hold of Bill? There is Exter Ten Dirty One. Good name. Perfect. Yeah, we'd be happy to chat. We're always welcome to you know brainstorm with you. So feel free to call us. All right. Well, thanks for jumping online, Bill. Absolutely. My pleasure. I appreciate it. Let me know if you guys have any questions. Lane at simplepassivecashflow.com. And we'll see you guys next time. Bye. Thanks so much. Take care. This website offers very general information concerning real estate for investment purposes. Every investor situation is unique. Always seek the services of licensed third-party appraisers and inspectors to verify the value and condition of any property you intend to purchase. Use the services of professional title and escrow companies and licensed tax, investment, and or legal advisor before relying on any information contained herein. Information is not guaranteed as in every investment there is risk. The content found here is just my opinion and things change and I reserve the right to change my mind. Above all else, do your own analysis and think for yourself because in the end, you are the only person who is going to look out for your best interests.